Well, hello, friends. Uh, one of the main tragedies of our extremely polarizing culture today is reflected in our language. Our description of things are no longer nuanced, no longer balanced, no longer honest. They are exaggerated. We tend to exaggerate our virtues and our accomplishments, and we tend to exaggerate as well the flaws and the shortcomings of others. Look at this picture. Does this seem like a real-life picture of the rock? No. This is a caricature of the rock. See, what is a caricature? A caricature is a drawing designed to exaggerate people's physical attributes. So the rock has an extremely thick neck, but in this caricature, it is thicker than real life. If you happen to have a big nose, and if someone were to draw a caricature of you, I, I have a sort of like a big nose, your nose would be the size of your head. And we all know that that's not how it is in real life. That's an exaggeration of one of your physical attributes. Yet, that's how we are talking, how we are used to talking today. We do that to ourselves, we do that to other people, and we do that to institutions as well, including the church. There are those nowadays that have a romanticized view of the church, and there are others that have extremely negative and pessimistic view of the church. See, in order for us to see the true value of the church, which is what this whole series is about. We, the church, is a series designed to restore in us the value of the church while at the same time finding our place within the church. If that is going to be a reality, if we're going to restore the value of the church, and if we are going to be able to see ourselves in it, understand our place, and understand our purpose within the church, we must have a realistic view of the church that's neither romanticized nor pessimistic. The passage that we are reading from today is a passage where the Apostle Paul gives us a, uh, gives us a realistic picture of what the church of Jesus really is. It's neither romanticized nor pessimistic or negative. In fact, this whole letter that we started reading from last week, gives us that realistic picture of what the church of Jesus is. Today we're talking about the church as holy, but yet broken. So let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 16. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were declared into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. This is the word of the Lord. There are three basic truths that we can draw from this passage that we just read. Part of the letter of, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. First, we learn here about the greatest gift. Uh, secondly, we learn about the insidious lie. And then uh, thirdly, we learn about the wildest truth. And all those things relate to the church. First, the greatest gift. While the Father's greatest gift to us and to the world is Jesus, Jesus' greatest gift to us and to the world is the church. Let me say that again. While the Father's greatest gift to the world and to us is Jesus, Jesus' greatest gift to us and to the world is the church. Why do I say that? Four reasons. First, because I'm going to go really hard right now, okay? There's no salvation outside of it because there's no salvation outside the church. Some of you are listening to this and you're saying, man, isn't this a Roman Catholic doctrine? No, it is not. Jesus has come to save the church. However, the church is made of individuals, okay? But God's salvific enterprise ultimately involves a people, ultimately involves the church. We get to be a part of that church, but his salvific enterprise is with the church. There is a picture of that in the Bible in the book of Genesis, chapters 6 and 9. You may have heard the story of Noah and his ark. And uh, God comes to Noah in, in the book of Genesis and tells him to build an ark in the middle of the desert because a flood was going to come and it was going to cover the whole earth. Mind you that when God gave that word to Noah, the word, the earth was not even used to rain. People didn't know what a strong rain was, and yet God gives Noah that vision. And Noah begins to build that ark while a lot of people were coming along and making fun of him. He's doing that with his son. But the flood actually comes, starts to rain, and there's a flood And the only people that get saved are those that make it inside the ark. That's the picture of the church. And if you don't believe me, coming from a Protestant tradition, just just listen what John Calvin says. John Calvin, he says, Beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. And if you still don't trust what Calvin said, Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confession of faith that our church adopts. The visible church 
which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation, as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true faith and of their children. And it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, listen to this, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. If you're not convinced yet, here is the Belgic Confession. We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved and that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself to live in a separate state from it, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ and as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given them. I don't know if that can't be, can be any clearer. There's no salvation outside of it. There's no way for you to experience salvation without being part of the church. You are saved to be a part of the church from the world into the church. But then secondly, not only is there no salvation outside of it, there is no sense of belonging without it. Verse 9, look at what the apostle Paul says in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he call the church? The fellowship of his son. In the article in the Belgic Confession that we read, and in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the church is the family of God. There's no way for you to enjoy the sense of belonging to the family of God outside the church. There's no sense, there's no way that you can gain that sense that you belong to God as his children apart from the church. During this pandemic, a lot of you have been disconnected to the church. Maybe you have started with online church and it has been hard to keep that rhythm every week, watching and being a part of church online. You've had a hard time uh, coming to um, our in-person gatherings for one reason or another, good reasons, I would assume. But you've been feeling disconnected, and you feel that your faith is cooling off. I've had conversations with many of those that are going through that right now, that they feel not only disconnected, but they feel that their faith is dying off, is cooling off. Of course, it's cooling off. Of course, you are losing that sense of belonging. Why? Because you cannot experience that sense of belonging outside of the context of the church. See, there is no mission disassociated from the church. There's no mission of Jesus disassociated from the church. See, a lot of us think that we can do God's work in the world apart from the church. The way in which God has chosen to redeem the world is first by redeeming individuals and bringing them into his family, but then through that family, through that body, the church is the body of Christ. Through that body, 
God intends to work in the world. God doesn't work in the world supernaturally as a force. This is not Star Wars, guys. (laughs) God works in the world through the church. The Spirit empowers and moves the church, and the church goes forward to fulfill the mission of Christ and to redeem broken creation, to draw people closer to Christ. And as people draw closer to Christ, cities are changed. Cities are transformed. Economies are changed. Economies are transformed. Problems of injustice and oppression are solved. Why? Because now people begin to see things under the perspective of the kingdom of God. And lastly, there is no formation apart from it. No formation apart from it. See, uh, one of the things that the Spirit of God is doing in the church is the Spirit of God is forming us who are the body of Christ into the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing. Your life in the family of God, your life in the church of Jesus Christ is designed so that you will become more and more like Christ. Your children in your household, if you are a parent, they, 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 they pick up the mannerisms of you, parents. They speak and talk a certain way. They have certain habits, right? If you are a parent that leaves your stuff around the house, guess what? Your kids are going to leave their stuff around the house as well, okay? <laughs> if you are good with your money, your kids will tend to be good uh, in managing money as well. If you are respectable in the way in which you use your language, your kids will be respectable as well in the way in which they address other human beings. But if you're disrespectful to your spouse and disrespectful to your kids, your kids will have a tendency to be disrespectful as well. When you become part of the family of God, you begin to uh, live as children of God, it's within that context that God shapes you. That's in that context that God forms you. Why are there gifts of the Spirit? The gifts of the Spirit are given to form us. And we cannot benefit from the gifts that the Spirit gives to the church unless I am inserted into the context of the church. How am I going to be corrected if I'm not within the family of God, living my life or doing life within the family of God? How am I going to be encouraged and counseled when I need if I am not doing life within the context of the family of God? How am I to grow in my understanding of the Scriptures and of the Gospel if I'm not coming under those who have received the gift of teaching in the family of God? How are my Hope's supposed to be restored if I am not receptive to the prophetic words that God gives to those within the family of God. So think about this. The church is Jesus' greatest gift to you and to the world. And if the church is God's greatest gift to the world and to you, why would you forfeit this gift? Why would you not open its wrappings? Why would you forfeit this gift? And, And I understand why maybe some of you have forfeited this blessing. 
why maybe some of you have forfeited this gift. Because, number two, of the insidious lie. The insidious lie. This insidious lie is a lie that has come straight from the pits of hell. It's a lie that's been um, perpetuated through the centuries by the devils and his minions, I believe. And it starts with, it's a twofold, it's a twofold lie, okay? This insidious lie is, is twofold. First, it says the church is perfect. The devil comes to you and says, oh, you should be a part of this. This is that which you've been looking for. This is a perfect community of people. Your condo association is imperfect. Your family is imperfect. It's an imperfect association of people. Your office is an imperfect association of people. The clubs that you are a part of are imperfect association of people. But this is a perfect association of individuals. I remember speaking to uh, a new attendee at one of our campuses. And I asked him, how, how is this working out for you? You've been coming to church and you've been going to group. Um, what's your assessment? And he says, man, I'm just so glad I was telling my wife, I'm so glad that I get to hang out with good people every week. Man, when I go to work, I hang out with a lot of bad people. But when I come to church, I know that everybody is good. Everybody is doing good. And I was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) This guy is setting himself up for major disappointment. And so I had to pull him aside and say, let me tell you something. There's no one really good here. I went through biblical passages, it says in Romans and in the book of Psalms, that there is uh, not one righteous, not even one. The Bible talks about that. And I said, hey, uh, people here are still human beings. The difference is that we are sinners, we're flawed sinners that understand this idea of grace. And we're trying to cope with, with, with the fact that we are imperfect people and that uh, we depend and need on the grace of God together. That's, that's what it's all about. But the biggest lie that someone can believe, which is planted, I believe, in people's hearts and in their minds by the devil, is that the church is perfect. This passage, this passage is here uh, to prove otherwise. And I think it's important that we uh, understand the context of what's happening, what's going on here, Because we don't want to have a naive expectation of the church and then soon enough be disappointed and lose our hope in the church of Jesus. See, this letter, the Apostle Paul starts off by praising the church, praising the church in Corinth. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to praise the church. He is glad for that church, that uh, gathering of believers in the city of Corinth. But then he begins right after that, after giving them the good news, after praising them, he goes and tells them the truth. Because news had come to Paul that there were quarrels within the church. Verse 10, actually verse, uh, verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you brothers. 
Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There were factions within the church that were fighting against one another. They each postured themselves as better as the others. There were those who were Judaizers that followed Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, and they said, ah, we follow Peter. Peter is the head of the church. He's in Rome. And then others said, no, 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 no. We follow Apollos. Why? Because Apollos was a powerful preacher. He was very powerful in his uh, way of communicating. And, and so you have the party there, not only of the Judaizers, but, uh, but of the sensationalist Christians that liked experience, that liked to be entertained, right? In the church, there are those as well. We call them Pentecostals and Charismatics. And they said, oh, we are the ones that, that, that uh, have the true experience here. And uh, they looked down on the Judaizers. And then you have the other ones, no, 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 no. I follow Paul. Paul is a missional apostle. He plants churches. He preaches the gospel. People come to faith through his ministry, right? He understands the Old Testament really well, and he can show us uh, in the Old Testament where Jesus is at. And he speaks of us Gentiles as also part of the blessing of Abraham as well. So I am with Paul. And then there were others who were super spiritual, says, no, I'm of Christ, <laughs> We're the gospel-believing ones. We, we are with Christ. We're not with Paul. We're not with Peter. We're not with Apollos. We're with Christ. <laughs> the over-spiritual Christians, the self-righteous one. In every church, including in this church, there are those as well. And what they're all doing is what we tend to do, even within the church, we tend to to build our identity around things and around people other than Jesus. And all of a sudden, we're no longer serving at the altar of Christ, but we're serving at the altar of something else, of a leader, of metrics, of influence, of fame, of knowledge and intellectualism. Of patriotism. Come on. We're no longer serving Christ. We have made a good thing into an ultimate thing. We have adopted another master and Lord and head of our lives other than Jesus. We're all doing that in the context of the church. See, the reason why the church is not perfect is because the church is a reflection of of all of those, the people that shape the church, that form the church, you and I. We are, like Martin Luther used to say, similus justus et peccatore in Latin, which means we're simultaneously just saints and sinners. That's what a Christian is. Now, our main identity is that we are just, that we are holy, because that's how God sees us in Jesus. Yet from everyone else's perspective, from a horizontal perspective, we're still sinners. See, when Jesus looks at the church, the church is blameless. That's what we read here in verse 8. 
Uh, he, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when God looks at the church, the church is holy. The church is guiltless. There is no blame in the church. But from everyone else's perspective, the church is still broken because it's composed of sinners, of broken people like you and I. And when you join the church, you make the church less perfect. That's the truth of the matter. I hear people all the time saying, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. Well, I say, whenever you join, we're going to have one more. (laughs) Just so you know. There's a danger, my friends, in believing this insidious lie, which is, number one, I said, you know, because the church is not perfect, but when you come in with that expectation and you experience disappointment, then the devil comes and he gives you the other side of that lie, which is you don't need the church. Are you going to be a part of this? Every church, yeah, you're right. Every church is filled with hypocritical people, with fake people, with self-righteous people. Not every church is filled with hypocritical, self-righteous people, but in every church there are self-righteous and hypocritical people because it's made up of sinners like you and I. I've seen so many people through the years that have dropped out of church. Maybe you're watching this today and you've been tremendously been wounded by spiritual leaders, by the church. I know so many people. And I acknowledge and I recognize that, that leaders are capable of hurting people, that churches can abuse power, that churches can manipulate communities and manipulate people, that the church is, because it's made of imperfect people, They, you know, can mistreat one another. Some of you carry deep wounds in your life and in your past because of your previous church religious experience. But I'd like you to think about this as well. Maybe the reason why you have dropped out, maybe the reason why you have uh, been afraid of committing, maybe the reason why you're now in the sidelines is because You have had a naive, simplistic view of the church, maybe because you bought into that lie, both that the church was perfect and that you didn't need the church. Let me tell you something, my friend. You cannot make it without the church. And therefore, you must fight this insidious lie. You and I must learn how to fight this insidious lie. So how do we fight this insidious lie? Three ways. First, we must recalibrate our expectations of the church. Recalibrate your expectations of the church. Coming into the church, believing that everything is going to be perfect, everything is going to be great, you're going to be in an environment with all good people, (laughs) is to go into marriage believing that you're never going to have any conflict in marriage that you're going to do a perfect job in raising children once you have children after being married. I remember Beth and I, uh, we were married before we had children, I think maybe a year, two years into into our marriage. Um, We were starting to talk about kids, and we had these friends who had kids 
friends that we respected, but we thought, oh, they're horrible parents. Why can't they just put limits on these children? Until we had children. (laughs) It's like being wounded by somebody in a romantic relationship and thinking that all women or all men are bad in the world. That's a naive, simplistic, generalized assessment of the church. So recalibrate your expectations of the church. That uh, if you are going to come into the church, specifically if God is calling you to do life in the context of this local church, that uh, your leaders may fail you at one point in time. That people may hurt and disappoint you and that you may actually hurt and disappoint your leaders and people as well. That's what it means to recalibrate your expectations of the church. Second way we can fight this lie is by restoring our hope in the church. Yes, There's been atrocities committed in the name of Christianity throughout history. But think about all the good that Christianity has brought into the world. I would even challenge to say that the the reason why we moderners value justice is because Christianity introduced this value into the West. The reason why we treat every single human being as the same is because we, Christianity has introduced the doctrine of the image of God. Even Aristotle speak, spoke of other races in inferior ways and said that there was something normal, that there were just some superior races and inferior races. The language of science, the strong always eats the weak, right? Christianity has introduced all sorts of good values. Christianity uh, has... Um, started hospitals, some of the major hospitals and universities in the West and in the world have been started by Christianity. Whenever disasters, natural disasters or wars happen and take place where people are hurt and people are in in grave needs of supplies and of care, the Christian institutions, the church is always the first one there. The church is the most generous institution in the world. It's true. And the church, it's Jesus' ultimate plan to restore the world. So I would challenge you to restore your hope in the church, to see the good in it and to see how God is using the church. See how God is using our church. Last month we made available a ministry report for 2020. Man, we fed tens of thousands of people together. We helped many people get emotional help through counseling. We've helped give medication to the sick. We provided supplies to poor kids to go back to school. Many have come to faith in Christ. And have set their hopes in Jesus. There's been so much good that we have seen. Give the church a chance. 
Restore your hope in the church. Then thirdly, reimagine your place in it. I want you to reimagine your place in the church. Someone once rightfully said that the church is not a museum for good people. It is a hospital filled with sick people. I want you to see yourself as someone that's in this hospital called the church, in need of healing, in need of help, so that you can help others, so that you can help in the enterprise of caring and healing others as well. Reimagine your place in the church. That leads us, obviously, to our last point, which is the wildest truth. We talked about the, the greatest gift, which is the church. We talked about the insidious lie, which is twofold, that the church is perfect and that you don't need the church. But then I, I want us to think about the wildest truth, the wildest truth that's present in this passage right here is that God ultimately loves and calls sinners to himself. Verse 4, I give thank to my God always for you because of what? The grace of our God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is reminding them the gift that they have received, which has been the grace of God poured over them, allowing them to be part of the fellowship of Jesus Christ. That God does not call those who are qualified because there is no one that's morally qualified to belong to the fellowship of God, which is the church. And if it weren't for a gracious God reaching out for sinners, there would be no hope for anyone to partake in this fellowship. The creator God of the universe, he doesn't call those who he looks from above and says, oh man, that person's got it all together. That other one got it all together. I'm going to invite them into my team. No, he feasts and he fellowships. The word here, fellowship, is the word koinonia, which is a deep, intimate relationship with. He doesn't do, though, do that with those who think that they're put together. Jesus says, I did not come for the healthy, but I have come for the sick. When you look in the gospel accounts, who is Jesus spending time with? Is he spending time with those who were respected and and Jewish society, those who are part of the religious class, those at the center of power? No. Jesus was known as the rabbi who would spend his time eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes. He feasts and he eats with sinners. He calls sinners. His church is made up of sinners, of broken people. Here at Crossbridge, there are some people that look better than others from the outside. But let me tell you something. I know some of those folks were all jacked up. And the only reason why we are here is because we've been called by Jesus, by his grace. Not because we deserve 
Not because we have earned a seat at his table, but because he loves and he calls sinners. But there is something even more beautiful than that. Jesus not only calls sinners, Jesus not only calls imperfect people to be a part of his fellowship, but he works through them as well. God works in the world through broken vessels. The little logo for this sermon today is like a little broken vessel. I'm sure you picked that up, right? He works in the world through broken instruments, broken vessels. Why does God do that? He does that to show his power because if he only worked with the best of people, then the credit would be on the people. But because he works with imperfect human beings like you and I, he gets the glory. He gets the honor. He gets the recognition. He gets the accolades. I mean, I oftentimes think about my own life. Why would God call somebody like me to proclaim his word, to lead many to Christ through the years, hundreds of people to Christ through the years, to plant churches? I mean, I know myself, and my wife knows me very well, more than you guys do. I'm a broken human being. I'm a sinner just like you. And it's amazing to me. It's a fascinating thing that God would want to work with someone like myself. When you look into the history of Christianity, who does God work with? He's worked with Peter. Who was Peter? Peter was the greatest betrayer of Jesus. The one who actually swore never to betray And yet he was the first one to betray Jesus. And yet after the resurrection, after Jesus had died, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and he says to Peter in the Gospel of John, and I've been at that beach, that same beach where Jesus had that encounter with Peter, the Sea of Tiberias. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, will you shepherd my sheep? Will you tend tend my flock? Jesus not only forgave the sinner, but he used the sinner in a very powerful way. And only those that realize that they did not deserve to be called, that they did not deserve, they don't deserve to be used by God, that are actually really powerfully used by God because we always minister from a place of weakness and not of strength. He works with sinners. God did amazing things through this church in Corinth including to meet the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem when a famine hit. We read about that in the second letter to the Corinthians. And yet it was an extremely flawed church with quarrels and with divisions and with factions within the church. He still used the church. Our church is extremely flawed. And yet God, by his grace, continues to want to use us as a church. And we step into that grace and we step into that privilege because we have been made whole. Despite the fact that we are broken, we have been made holy through Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus takes the sin of all of those that God has called to be part of the church and he dies for them so that they can be not only welcomed to this family but sent out into the world as his witnesses. The Apostle Paul says, 
I'm grateful for the grace that's been lavished upon you and for the witness that has been confirmed in you. We stepped into that witness, even though we are broken sinners. Because broken sinners within the church is all there is. And so I want to end this this sermon here today by saying by, by, by uh, saying two things. Actually, I want to pose two challenges. The first, the first challenge uh, is for those of you that ha- have lost hope in the church. You have become cynical of the church. You have become skeptical of the church. And I pray that God in this very moment would restore your hope in the church and that you would understand that God writes straight through in, within, crooked lines. I pray that God would restore your hope in the church. And if that's you today, I want to pray for you. If you are in a place where you're cynical and skeptical about the church, you're cold about the church, you're on the fringes and isolated from the church, that Jesus would restore that hope, would restore that love, and bring you into the center of his fellowship with him. You have already been called. But like the eldest son in the parable of the prodigal son, you have chosen to still stay outside. He's calling you in to the party. Come, come in. I want to pray for you at the back end of the sermon. But I want to also pray for those of you here today that maybe for the very first time you hear Jesus calling you to be a part of his church. And up to this point, you have always felt inadequate. You have always felt dirty. You you have always... uh, Um, seen yourself through the lens of shame and guilt, and Jesus wants to break those lens today in your life. And he wants you to understand that you are the exact type of person that he desires to fellowship with through Jesus Christ, his son. And so if that's you here today, and you sense Jesus calling you for the very first time to belong to him, to fellowship with him, to experience salvation in him without, within the context of the church, I want to pray for you as well. So if you're part of the first group, I want you to pray this with me. Father, I ask that you restore my hope in your church. Today, I recommit myself to it. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it. And if for the very first time you want to uh, answer the call that Jesus is placing on you to be a part of his people because you recognize his lordship, because you recognize that he is the one that brings you into that fellowship and there's no salvation outside of it, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Will you pray with me? Jesus, bring me into your church through that which you have done on my behalf. In your name I pray, amen. If you prayed any of these two prayers today, I want to encourage you to let us know. There's going to be a link in our comment section. And we want to follow up with you. We want to come alongside you. We want to welcome you into this fellowship. We want to restore your fellowship into this community as well. We want to, we want to uh, help you to grow and to be formed in the image and the likeness of Christ. We want you to engage with us 
in mission. We want to experience the gift of salvation. And ultimately, we want you to gain the sense of belonging that your heart so craves for. May God bless you today. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit.